Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Tommy is about some books. One, two, one, two, three, four. Hello, dear friends. Welcome to Sawbones, Marital Tour of Misguided Medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McRoy. And I'm Sydney McRoy. Why did you change the intonation and you added the dear friends? Because I was eating a bowl, a sort of a protein bowl with chicken and rice and beans, mm-hmm. and it was spicy. And it's doing things to my mouth that as a professional broadcaster, I should be above. But uh, as a human being, I'm not. I'm only a man, flesh and bone. You're going to have to work on that. Our our podcast listening audience enjoys the comfort of repetition, the 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 familiarity. Indeed. Indeed. Of the rhythm of your intro. Right there with them. Should I try, try it again? Just try so they it. have one they can. Yeah, just try it again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, Marital Tour of Misguided Medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. That was just for you, wasn't it? I'm just not realizing mm-hmm. that, that was that just, was just for you. I needed that to get in the right headspace. Justin, our listeners have questions. Yes. So many questions. And we have a vacation coming up, <laughs> which is perfect for us. No, we have answers to your questions. You act like these are so easy for me to put together, but here's a little, I'm going to peek behind the curtain for everyone listening. I still, even if I know the answer to your your wacky, wild, weird medical questions, even if I know deep in my heart, I still look them up. <laughs> Because I want to be, I want to make sure I want to cross reference and double check. And then sometimes these medical questions are are more like general science questions or about the medical industry system stuff that I don't necessarily have, you know, at my fingertips. So I do research these is my point. Uh, Well, um, I'm happy that you do because they're some of my favorite. I always feel like I get a few new wrinkles in the old cerebellum uh, when we do one of these episodes. Well, our listeners have great questions. They really, really thoughtful, interesting stuff. I hadn't necessarily thought about questions. So, uh, well, let's get right into it. There's no need for us to uh, uh, waste any more time. Uh, our first question comes to us from Rebecca. Uh, it, she, Rebecca says, um, "I had an osteochondroma on my shoulder for about half my life, and." Uh, Rebecca's wanting to know why uh, she can't get her, uh, she can't keep her bones if you get them removed. Uh, she had the osteochondroma and she was joking about how she was going to keep it as a knickknack, but they said that uh, they that Rebecca couldn't take it with her. Um, kept asking for it. Uh, parents got to see it in person, but she was still asleep. She's only seen pictures. Um, her mom thinks maybe she had to do some tests to make sure it wasn't cancerous. And Rebecca wants to know why she could not keep her bone. 
So this is a good question. And I think you could uh, take it and generalize it to other things that we remove from your body. Why can't you keep them? Uh, she and, and Rebecca mentioned specifically, I've heard of people keeping kidney stones. Why was I not allowed to keep that? And so I had to look into this because what we generally, what you might hear if you ask your surgeon or one of the other staff in the operating room or whoever does your intake, if you ask somebody, can I keep this piece of bone, this, my appendix, my gallbladder, whatever, they'll probably tell you you're not allowed. Why? Well, that might not be true. <laughs> so some hospitals do have policies that are probably rolled into, you know, when you sign a permission to treat form mm -hmm. at a hospital, mm -hmm. you're signing, you're agreeing to a lot of things. Uh -huh. And among them, it might have in there, if we remove anything from your body, you're not allowed to keep it. And it's just a hospital policy, probably one Gross. for uh, ease of, if you're going to give something to somebody back, one, if you do need to do tests on it, if you need to do pathology, if you need to check and see if something's cancer, as, as Rebecca mentioned, uh, you do need to take it to the pathology pathology lab first and do those studies. Right. And then you're going to have to try to get through the logistics of making sure that if there were any concerns for infectious disease or whatever, that it's not that, that it's all fine and safe to give back to someone. Uh, and there's a lot of logistics, time, money in doing that. And a lot of hospitals just don't want to mess with it. It makes right? sense. Yeah. And, and they don't want to be liable if they don't do it right. It's an organizational pain in the butt. First, in some cases, there's a practicality. Sometimes when they remove certain things from your body, they actually have to kind of crush them or destroy them as they remove them for ease of removal. So you can do like a smaller surgical site, something like that. Like the brains of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. Y yes. Yes. That's actually a good. Scrambled up with a rod and pulled out the nose. So, so we don't necessarily do that with your brain. Good. Which I is need good. it for podcasting. But but for other things that might happen. And so in that case, you can't have it back because it was destroyed in the removal process. Sometimes they do need the entire thing to do testing on. If it's something, if it's a very small piece of tissue or something, they might need the whole thing. But there are other times where they just tell you no, because and honestly, as a physician, I can I can back this up. We don't know how that would work. I don't know. I put it in a jar and hand it off to someone else who takes it to the other person who looks at it under a microscope. I'm not really sure what happens after that. You're, you might just be asking the wrong person and you need somebody who's more in like a, an administrative role to answer. The problem is if you, as a layman myself, if you have to ask more than one person for your kneecap, you start to look like someone with a problem. <laughs> if you say casually like, hey, I'd like my kneecap after you remove it. And they say, I, I don't know. And you're like, get me the person I need to talk to to take this kneecap home today. <laughs> if you do that and it is not. Now, again, if it's an internal hospital policy, it is what it is. Um, yeah, but you but if there wild. isn't one, which which a lot. Well, I mean, people have done this. I read I, I read a lot of stories of people who have kept uh, the story I was reading was uh, a, a young person who kept their foot that had to be removed and carried that. it around with them. I get that. And you can do that because it, it, there shouldn't be any reason that a removed piece of a human is any more dangerous from like a biohazard standpoint than any other sort of, um, 
I don't know. Gross thing that you'd cut meat off that we have it. in our house or anything oh, like that. Sydney. I mean, as long as you, there wasn't some sort of an incredibly infectious disease process. If we just removed it, I, there shouldn't be a problem is right. what I'm saying. Um, and it can be preserved appropriately. So you may be able to keep it. It's worth asking if your doctor doesn't know, I, don't give them a hard time. We probably don't know, but y- you might just need to ask somebody in, in administration about it. Yeah. And if there's not a policy now, there is some legislation because some will tell you it's illegal. That's not entirely true again. Now, uh, there is something called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which makes it illegal to own or trade any remains of someone who is Native American. And so okay. that's actually that is one legal issue. And then there are a few states, uh, Louisiana, Georgia, Missouri. They have specific bans on owning human body parts. <laughs> Uh, and that includes your own. So uh, if you're in those states, you it may be a little more of a of an issue. But fair enough. This next one is from MP, who asks, "What's your hot take on asexuality and medical stuff? For example, sometimes a quote low libido has been listed as something that might raise concern. I am asexual, so I straight up have no libido. Or when I get a pap smear, my body super rejects things going up my down there." It stings and burns, probably more than it should, but I can use tampons just fine. Online asexuality forums tell me this is a common for asexual vagina havers, but a lot of doctors don't seem to register that asexuality is a thing, so I don't bring that up. Do y'all learn about that, and is there any research on the relationship between asexuality and, quote, unusual symptoms? That's from MP. I think this is a good question because it draws some some important distinctions that... I would say at least when I went through medical school, which is not that long ago, still, it's getting longer and longer ago. uh, These weren't, we weren't trained in any way about asexuality. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm not saying that my medical school curriculum is necessarily indicative of every medical school in the country. But I know that a focus on all types of diversity is a is a big movement within American medical schools today because it has not been um, any kind of diversity that that you can discuss has not been a focus previously and I know that there are many medical schools who have made very intentional efforts to try to change that mm. so the curriculum at my my very school may be better than that today uh, but it is it is something that physicians you see who maybe even aren't aren't that much older are still not necessarily in the know. So I'd say that, that you're probably right that sometimes doctors aren't quite certain what you're talking about. They may not be educated on this. And I, and it's hard because I don't want to say that it's, uh, it should not be on the patient to do the emotional labor of explaining that it should be on our end to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are more and more, I have a whole collection of journal articles. Uh, there are more and more journal articles being published on these kinds of issues. But all that aside, if you see low libido uh, as something that is like a diagnostic term or a complaint mm-hmm. in a medical chart, that is almost certainly coming from the patient themselves. The patient uh, was complaining about a low libido or low sex drive. Right? Yes, exactly. Uh, if a patient comes in and says, I am concerned because I did have a higher libido and now I don't. And I am, my life is, you know, I personally 
have less of a quality of life because of this. And I want you to address it. Tell me diagnostically what happened and how do I, you know, treat it? How do I fix it? If they come in and say, I have no sex drive, but that is the way I do it. I'm still crushing it 24 seven. That's just who I am. That's just how I roll. That's not going to be a medical complaint. No, no. And I can't, I can't see any physician ever pushing past that. I don't, I, I personally wouldn't, uh, I mean, that's not something I would go digging for unless it was specifically relevant to whatever the medical complaint is, whatever the patient has brought to me to address that day. And if a patient asks me, I am concerned, I did have a libido, I don't now, can you help me address it? Of course. And I will put that in the chart. You know, I mean, I, I, there's probably a code for low libido. Uh, But if, if it's not, if it's, if it's who you are, if you don't have sex drive and it's you, then that's not a problem. There's no pathology there. Just like with asexuality in general, it's not a pathology. Mm-hmm. It's just a way a person is just, uh, just like heterosexuality or, you know, whatever LGBTQ, everybody who's not straight. That's uh, just a way people are. So there would be no pathology. So I, you shouldn't have a doctor trying to address that or trying to change that or treat that in any way. Um, And I I, I think that it involves a lot of open conversations with doctors and on our end, a lot more focus on that kind of education in medical school definitely needs to be done because in terms of your question about research, uh, not that I'm not that I'm aware of. And we certainly aren't teaching enough about these things in medical school. Uh, Here's one from Emily from a very young age. I had problems with my feet. I'd be in constant pain. And it would get so bad that I couldn't walk. Finally, at 13, I went to an orthopedic surgeon instead of the podiatrist that I had been seeing since I was five. The surgeon told me I had an extra bone in each foot and the left extra bone was pinching a nerve. It was removed, but I still have the right extra bone. Is having extra bones common? I'm curious as to why the podiatrist never noticed extra bones in my x-rays, but the surgeon saw it right away. So I, I had to actually look up how common it is. I know that having an extra bone here and there, having a, uh, an accessory bone is what we would probably call it. Mm. <laughs> an accessory. It's an accessory. Sure, casual, fun, kicky bone. Mm-hmm. It's an extra little, it's like an earring. For all seasons. But a bone. It's not as uncommon as I would have. I know that that happens. I've seen it incidentally on x-rays. And most of the time people wouldn't know because most of the time they don't cause you problems. Obviously they can. Mm-hmm. Most of the time they don't. And so you wouldn't know unless you just happen to get an x-ray. And so you went, hey, look, that's there. I'm guessing the podiatrist just didn't notice because it was on both sides and maybe it didn't click right away. I'm not going to slam this podiatrist. Who knows? You know, I would say it is like one of those um, (laughs) one of those two spot the differences puzzles. You know what I mean? Yeah. They just looked and they both look the same. Look the same to me. Look the same. Uh, The fan fan has four (laughs) blades. The, the cat is gray with a bushy tail. It looks the same. I, I would never suggest that there is anything intrinsic to the training of an orthopedic surgeon versus a podiatrist that would make one better at, at spotting that than the other. Um, I'm glad your surgeon did, though. The most common extra bone that you're going to have in your foot, if you have one, is an accessory navicular bone, uh, which is what I wonder. It's just one of the bones in your feet. And uh it can occur in anywhere from 2 to 20% of the general population. So obviously we have no idea. Uh, we don't know. In, in a lot of people, this can happen. So it's, it's not nearly as uncommon as you would think. And there is pain that can be associated with it. Most of the time it isn't. But if it is pushing on other structures that cause pain, um, then they call that accessory navicular syndrome. We're so creative. I love it. In medicine. 
Uh, and uh, and then, you know, you can have things you can need things like perhaps uh, surgery, but sometimes just things like a cast or a boot or ice or physical therapy or some sort of orthotic device. All those kinds of things, but it is not nearly as uncommon as you would think. Certainly, yeah, I'm glad you're. I'm glad your surgeon found it. I hope. That, I hope you got to keep it. Well, I guess it depends. It's an extra depends weird on where bone you that nobody's and... got. You can name it whatever you want at that point. Name it after yourself. That's you're right. The only one with that bone. It could be. Maybe it's an actual accessory. Then make it into a necklace. There you go. Or... Uh, here's one from Aiden. <laughs> if two people who develop an immunity to a disease, like chickenpox, have a child, how come the child can still get the disease? This is a good, this is a good question. It reminds me of my, my favorite joke uh, from my brother, my brother and me, because it wasn't my joke, so I'm allowed to say it. Uh-huh. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert told us that um, if you uh, feed poison ivy to a goat and then drink the milk, that you'll develop an immunity to poison ivy. And Travis said that if you feed a goat your passport and you drink the milk, you'll get diplomatic immunity. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I always like that. Good job, Travis. My joke. Uh, so th- unfortunately, this is not the case that you will that you will be immune if you if you are born to two people who are immune to chickenpox. Uh, in terms of the person who has the sperm in the equation, whether or not they're immune really doesn't factor into it. So that won't, it's just not, you're not going to carry, what provides immunity are antibodies and the sperm's not going to carry those antibodies. So that, that kind of is irrelevant. Now the person who actually carries the pregnancy, if they have antibodies to chicken pox, some of those antibodies are going to cross the placenta. There are a lot of different antibodies that cross the placenta and can provide some transient immunity to the newborn baby. Do I have this right that like... I'm I'm probably mischaracterizing this, but is the sperm basically bringing like information? DNA. DNA. Yep. And the egg is really like the. In the beginning, it's just DNA, but then, but then all that DNA programs all kinds of stuff to happen. Okay. And in the beginning, it's just a bunch of information. So why does the why can the? I guess is it because the it's growing inside. Okay, got it. The per, the person got who it. carries the pregnancy has antibodies in their bloodstream that will cross the placenta while the fetus is developing. Okay, got it. So it's it's the location. <laughs> it's not the it's not the egg or the sperm. It's the location. It's not the house. location. It, location. It, location. It's not the house. It's the neighborhood. <laughs> and the the neighborhood in this sense, the the pregnant person is the one who can. Their antibodies to whatever they are immune to can cross the placenta and provide immunity for a while. This is called p- passive immunity, meaning that the baby's body is not making antibodies. It just got some, right? Mm-hmm. The, some were just kind of handed over to it. And those only last so long. And if you're not making new ones, then at some point that immunity wears off. And it's usually after just a few weeks those antibodies are gone and then you are susceptible to whatever diseases again. There's some more uh, passive immunity that occurs from breastfeeding. You can pass antibodies through breast milk to the baby. Mm -hmm. But again, this is not permanent. The only way that this baby will be protected against chicken pox or whatever infectious disease you're talking about is by making sure that they are immunized according to the CDC childhood immunization schedule on time, all their immunizations. I mainly like this question, Aiden, because you gave me an opportunity to talk about this again. Well, get your vaccines. Now that you've used your bully pulpit, uh, we can move on to the real reason that we're all here. 
The billing department? Making money, exactly. <laughs> Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Uh, Okay, Sidster, who do we have next here? Uh, Grace. Hi, Dr. Sydney and Justin. It didn't say doctors. Well, it's a typo. Hi, Dr. Sydney and Justin. My friend recommended your podcast to me a few months ago, and I've loved working through the archive ever since. Thanks. Yesterday, my roommate made a comment that's so interesting and enlightening that doctors don't actually let their friends and family follow the medical advice they give out to their patients. It's worth noting she's obviously anti-vax, doesn't believe in mammograms, etc. She believes that doctors give different advice to loved ones, but they do it on the down low. Because if they really do advise their patients what they actually want to say, they would be fired, lose their medical license, etc. 
I know there was a family practice doctor who was a friend of the family growing up that fed these ideas. She really feels like she can't trust the entire medical field because doctors are in the pocket of being silenced by the government slash big pharma. There's no way to argue with her. So I, okay, first of all. There is a question here. Oh. Uh, just like, um, is there any basis to this, basically? Right. I think it's worth addressing this because, well, first of all, man, as a fellow family practice physician, it makes me so sad to think that someone in my beloved field. Bad eggs everywhere. Fed these ideas. There's bad eggs everywhere. Uh, I, there, is, there is no basis to the idea that doctors have secret clubs where we get together and like share all the real stuff. And then so that we can make sure and tell each other and tell our families and tell our friends and then tell our patients something different. Uh, there, there is no, there is no truth to that. Um, which I think most people would probably expect. And there is no pressure from, I mean, from any, I, certainly administrative pressures on cost control and things can occur in different medical institutions. But at the end of the day, if other doctors are like the doctors in my department, we kind of feel like we should get to do what we want because we went to medical school and whatever the costs are for the company, that's not our problem. Our job is to take care of people. That tends to be the struggle most of the time. Justin can attest to me railing If there was about a it. secret thing that Cindy could tell patients that would be good for them and would irritate her superiors, she would do it every single day, all day, every day. You would hear it from everybody. And I, and not maybe perhaps not all uh, physicians are chaotic good, but <laughs> right. But I think a lot of us are. So I think we, we took, most of us, uh, you can't speak for all physicians, most of us take very seriously the oath that we took, the promise we made, and we want to be right. We want to give people right information. We also can be a little arrogant and we like to get it right. And that means giving you the right answers so that you can feel better and come back and say, oh, I feel so much better. You were right. That was great advice. Thank you. That is, that is our goal for the majority. But I think it's worth noting that while there is not a an actual basis for the idea that doctors intentionally give you bad advice, we have a long history in medicine of all members of the medical community, not just physicians, everybody, physicians included, uh, taking advantage of people who have less power, of minority populations, of, of anyone who is not able to necessarily have access to the information for themselves or to speak up for themselves, have the, the, you know, judicial power, have the systemic power. There are plenty of examples throughout medical history of those people being taken advantage of and of being experimented on and, and used in the system. And so if you say, is there a historical basis for it? There are lots of examples. We do a whole podcast about it uh, in medical history of times when vulnerable populations were mistreated by the medical establishment. So I, I, I can understand why some people approach medicine and mod the whole system with trepidation. That is I think that that is something that we as medical professionals could be better about understanding, having some sympathy and empathy for and trying to work through with our patients as opposed to just saying, well, that's not true. Right. I, you know, I, now, again, it isn't true now. I mean, I, this is not the way things work. But if people are still nervous and a little concerned, I think that a conversation between them and the people they've trusted with their care, we should all be open to the doctor included. Mm -hmm. There you go.
That's what you would say. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Thanks for just undermining my entire argument. That was, by the way, that's the internet. We just, yes, yes. that's Twitter right there. Here's, here's my well-reasoned, thoughtful response. And then here's the tweet that undoes it all. Uh, I will say also that these doubts are going to persist until medicine is removed from an inherently immoral capitalist system. That we live in. <laughs> that's true. That's true. If, if we were in a more uh, single payer system, it would be a lot easier. It'd be a lot more transparent. Yeah. Uh, Mike says, my doctor could not answer this question when asked, and I wanted to reach out to you since you've been such a great communicator on this subject. My sister refuses to vaccinate her child. My children are older, and we've kept them away from her family at a great emotional cost. My wife is about to have our third child, and we're worried about my mother acting as a carrier between families because the mother often uh, babysits my sister's child and sees our kid shortly after. When I asked my mother not to visit us in the hospital uh, or until the new baby has had her, its vaccines, she wanted to know when it would be safe. What I thought is most kids have a majority of vaccines by age two, but I know there's more to it than that. What age is relatively safe for a, a vaccinated child to be around someone who is frequently near unvaccinated one? Am I being overprotective? Now, I would imagine that the, if the mom has had her vaccines, like that's not, I mean, we're not really worried about like, skin transference or like clothes transference, right? With this stuff? No, I mean, I'm not saying that that is completely impossible depending on what infectious illness we're talking about. But I think what you're, what the big concern would be is if the mom got something and then right. gave it, which if, if your mom's been vaccinated against all these things or had them, depend, I don't know how old she is, depending on, you know, when she was a kid and what vaccines we had. If she either had the diseases or has been vaccinated, in theory, that should be protective. Uh, it's tough that this is such, I'm sorry that you're in this situation because it's a tough situation. Uh, and this question I have seen come up many times in, in various forums. So your kids are protected against the majority of childhood diseases. I would say, I wouldn't say two, I would say by the age of five probably with that last set of if you think about if you're a parent you know your kids get a lot of vaccines early on and there are several times you go and they get like five or six at once uh the last big chunk of those is between the ages of four and six and it's what a lot of people think of as the kindergarten shots the shots okay. you have to get and it's your last set of boosters but for a wide variety of childhood diseases um, and once you get those you should be protected against those up until then you're getting shots and you're getting boosters and you do have immunity to them, but it's hard as a, as a doctor and as a scientist for me to say that at any given point, your child is a hundred percent protected. If they, if they haven't finished out their entire series of boosters, otherwise we wouldn't do the boosters, right? right. That's why we do them. Um, that being said, you know, even after the childhood vaccines are done after age five, we give another booster for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis later. We give another booster for meningitis later. We uh, The HPV, not that that's a concern in this case, but there are vaccines that come later um, that you're not getting yet. So it's hard. Until everyone's vaccinated, they're not protected completely. I would say that the majority of childhood vaccines aren't done until five would be, if you want a more concrete answer, that's, that's probably it. Um, I would say if your mom's been vaccinated, and the kids that the, the your sister's kids aren't sick, then you're probably safe most of the time. But if your sister's kids get sick 
and they're not sure what it is since they are now vulnerable. And I feel for those children because they're vulnerable um, since they're not getting any of their childhood vaccines. Uh, if they get sick in any way, one, I hope they see a doctor very soon to be evaluated to make sure it's not one of those diseases. And two, I would keep everybody away uh, from the new baby and your kids in general until you figure out what they have. But I'm sorry, Mike. I'm sorry you're in that situation. That's a rough one. Me too. Uh, from Joe, I'm hoping you can help me understand what seems like a serious oversight in the scientific study of medicine and how scientific data is used by insurance companies in America. Uh, I'm a type 1 diabetic. I've been using Humalog 100 for about 10 years. This is a type of insulin. Okay. Can you condense this question down for me? Because there are several paragraphs the, of it. The important point that I know, the important point that Joe wants to know is uh, they were well controlled on Humalog and then uh, their insurance company this month chose to stop covering Humalog and has required all patients to switch to Novalog under the basis that these are scientifically equivalent. Um, and they are wondering, uh, why is there such a huge, why is there such a huge oversight in scientific studies? What can we do collectively to get the government to regulate insurance companies so they cannot force patients into dangerous medical situations by requiring medication switches without first funding studies on the effect of switches? So specifically the question is about, you know, why do we, why do we make patients switch? And if we are making them switch, have we done a study on the front end to say that, not only are Humalog and Novolog equivalent, just because these are the two drugs being used in this case, but switching from one to the other won't affect anything. If you're well controlled on one, we can switch you to the other and you'll be just as well controlled on the other. Because the act of switching is actually part of the problem, right? Right. It's not just, you know, in a lab are the two equivalent. The switching itself is part of the problem. Um, and part of this has to go to what a formulary is, like why... Why does your insurance company have a formulary? Why do they only pay for certain drugs? Why did they switch from Humalog to Novolog? Cheaper. So generally speaking, when they make a switch, it's a mon- it's a money thing. Um, they Again, have inherently immoral <laughs> capitalist system. The insurance companies have pharmacy and therapeutics committees, which is a panel of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and, and other clinical experts who sit down and decide. What are the drugs we should cover? And they set those tiers. You know, your insurance company probably has like a first tier and a second mm-hmm. tier and a third tier and all that stuff and what your copays are for them. They set all that. Now, as to the exact cost, they don't they don't do that part, but they set what drugs are on the different ones. Um, and if anything is equivalent, then they may replace it with something else. Right. Because a lot of classes have more than one drug in that class that does the same thing. The problem is that if you've got a company that makes Humalog and a company that makes Novolog, the two of them are in direct competition because this is capitalism. Right. So one's going to try to undercut the other one with better pricing to get the deal with the insurance company to get on their formulary. Right. And they can do that at any time, which can have you switch medications halfway through the year. It switches every year. Every year they redo the formulary and you might stay the same. Your drugs might stay the same or they might all change. They always do that once a year. But in a lot of states, uh, you can change it at any time. Now, there has been legislation in more recent years to try to stop this process, Mm -hmm. to try to at least pin insurance companies down so that they can't switch formulary mid-year. But even if you did that, they could still reevaluate their formularies once a year. (sighs) And as a physician, I can tell you, January is always a disaster. It's always with um, proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, medicines like Nexium, Prevacid, all the Dexalant. 
every formulary changes on everyone every January. I have no idea why. <laughs> M- money. I know why. It's money. Yeah, money, money. Inherently it's money is the, is the problem. Um, but as long as there's all these behind the scene monetary deals being made, uh, I don't think anybody's going to fund any studies on this other stuff because they can... They can switch whenever they want to to get the best deal. And they'll tell you that they're doing it to get you, the consumer, the best deal. Wink! Because <laughs> you know how good companies are at passing those savings on to you. But the, the concern is, well, in a lab, these two drugs were proven to be equivalent. So, fine. We'll just switch between them. And, you know, studies and things that we observe in, in vitro and the way something reacts across the whole population doesn't always reflect how it does person to person and what your personal experience might be. So what I would say is one on a small level, you can lobby your um, elected officials to prevent insurance companies from switching formularies mid year. Mm -hmm. But on a larger level, we need to completely redo the entire American healthcare system. So either one, whatever you guys have time for this afternoon, if yeah. you want to do either one of those things, it'd be great. Uh, Chris wants to know, this is going to be our final question, I believe. Yes. Is there any benefit to medicated lip balm or does it basically do the same thing as the regular kind? This is, this is one of those questions that we sometimes encounter where like, just by seeing the, just by asking the question, I already know the answer. Like, because I took a half second to think about it. Like, I feel like I already know how this is going to go. So first of all, I had to, Chris, I'm so glad you, well, I both am thrilled that you asked this question because I've learned new things and also dismayed because I don't really like the things I've learned. Uh, when you asked about medicated lip, lip balm, first of all, I had to look up that. What is they What do they mean when they say medicated? Um, because it's a menthol. So yes, most of the time, from what I can tell, if a, if a chapstick, I shouldn't say chapstick, that's a brand. If some sort of lip balm, you're going to come after us, chapstick or otherwise, says medicated, they're probably talking about including menthol or camphor or something that makes your lips tingly when you use it. Mm-hmm. That is typically what medicated means. Um, there are other things you can put on your lips that actually have medicine in them, like things for um, cold sores and stuff like that. But that mm-hmm. is not what medicated, that is not the way I'm taking this question to mean okay. medicated lip balm. I think we just mean like chapstick versus medicated chapstick, right? Got it. Yes. Um, now that tingly sensation doesn't actually do anything for you. A lot of people enjoy it, but it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> they nasty. But it's not helping you in any medical sense. And we've talked about this before with, with stuff like anything that's mentholated, right? Stuff you put on your skin or like inhale, like it can make you feel like you're breathing better, Yeah, but it's not, it's not, it's just (laughs) the sensation. The thing about your lips is that, uh, you have a barrier on all your skin, your lips included called the stratum corneum. Okay. And it stops moisture from leaving your skin and evaporating out into the environment. Right. Well, during uh, the summer or during the winter when it's when the air is dry, you can lose moisture more readily. And so a lot of people like to use something like a lip balm, some sort of protective coat that will prevent. That's all it does. It just coats your lips to try to prevent them from losing moisture so quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are times, like I said, like in extreme cold conditions or when it's really dry or whatever, when this could be helpful, okay. you know, 
Um, the problem is <laughs> that, and people have actually accused these products of being addictive for this reason. They're, it's not addictive. It's not in, in the sense that like when you talk about an addiction, you don't, you don't become physically dependent. Right. Right. On, on lip balm. You're right. It doesn't work differently because of the introduction of lip balm. No. And you don't go through withdrawal symptoms if you stop using right. it. You know, it's not that kind of thing. But what can happen is that because of some of these ingredients, um, specifically the the menthol and the camphor and things like that, a lot of people tend to react to that with a little bit of irritation and dermatitis. Mm. So what you might interpret as, oh, my lips are starting to itch and feel irritated. I must need more of this medicated lip balm mm -hmm. is actually the effect of the medicated lip balm on your lips. We actually see a similar, if I remember correctly, see all the similar phenomenon with um, like antacids. Yes. With things right? like Tums or Rolaids or things that can in over time trigger more acid production, even though they can reduce your symptoms initially. So, and this is not for everybody that we don't know. I mean, it, they've estimated like 10 to 15% of people are going to have this reaction. It could be more, could be less, but it may be that every time you use your medicated lip balm and then a few hours later you go, Ooh, my lips feel itchy. I need more of it. It's really the lip balm itself. That's causing the problem. And if you just go cold Turkey, <laughs> stop using it and wait, your lips will heal. And then you'll find you didn't need it to begin with. Uh, and this is this has blown my mind as somebody who walks around with a tube of some sort of lip balm in my pocket, literally twenty four seven, all the time. I have one by my bed when I sleep at night. I, I, again, I'm not addicted. That's what you say. You're like scratching your arm fervently. I want to use some. Talking about it makes me want to put some on my lips. But you are addicted. I'm not. No. Well, I mean, and obviously, there's more to addiction than just the physical addiction. There's psychological dependence as well. But. The point, it also Gonna smells really have good. To face it, you're addicted to bomb. The one I'm using, you got me. It smells like coconut. I love it. I feed your addiction. <sighs> oh, man, I'm your I'm your dealer. Got any chapstick? This is I'm not cool. me. This is not me railing against. By the way, lip balm. I think if you don't use, use the medicated ones, then it's probably just like I mean, go go for it. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think there's any reason to be concerned. But if you're using medicated lip balms and you find that your lips feel itchy and irritated a lot. You might want to try an experiment. Don't use it for a few days and see if you actually feel better without it. It'll be a tough couple days. You're not withdrawing, but because your lips will feel kind of right. you know, dry and itchy. But then the, they might be better. So uh, there's your man. My mind exploded with this yeah. information. F folks, that's going to do it for us this week on Sawbones. We hope you've enjoyed yourself. Uh, thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Uh, thanks to the Max Fun Network for having us as a part of their extended podcasting family. And thanks to you at home for listening to our podcast. Um, we we hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, if you have questions like this, I guess you can always send them to Zawbones at MaximumFun.org. Yeah, please just title it something like medical question, weird medical question, something yeah. like that in your email. Um, because I search for these. I, I save them up. So even if I didn't answer them this time, I save up your questions and try to get to them whenever we do one of these. So. Perfect. Uh, folks, that's going to do it for us this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head.
Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.